Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education, those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. What does it mean to lead as the game changer? What does it mean to influence, to inspire, to direct and to motivate us all to honour that new social contract of education, today's learning for tomorrow's world? There's nobody better in the world for us to be talking to about leadership of today's learning for tomorrow's world than Michael Fullan. He's the former Dean of the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education, Professor Emeritus at the University of Toronto. He's led more programs, written more books, influenced more people than I can throw a stick at. He's received the Order of Canada. He holds five honorary doctorates. What an honour. I'm excited. I can't wait. Let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our Series 11 sponsor? Thanks, Adriano. Of course. We're proud to be partnered with the School for Tomorrow and Alex Bell at Portland Education in delivering a dynamic coaching-based leadership program called Lead Now. Lead Now provides the opportunity for emerging and established middle leaders to further build towards their full potential contributing to the ongoing high performance of the school community they serve. Head to a schoolfortomorrow.com slash coaching. Let's go. Phil, it is so wonderful to be with you uh, on on, uh, Game Changers Series 11, episode number one. And before we get to our very esteemed guests, and thank you for that, that beautiful introduction about Michael. Phil, how is the People's Democratic Republic of Fitzroy treating you today? We're just excited. We're buzzing. Because we, we we get to we, we get to talk to the source today, don't we, Adriana? We straight to, to the source. We, exactly. So so let's go straight to the source, shall and, we? And none of that source has kale or tofu in it. No, no, none of it whatsoever. It's a solid Ontarian beef burger today. There you go. Well, Michael, it's so <laughs> wonderful to have you on Game Changes. I'm going to ask you a very first question that we ask all of our guests, and that is tell us a little bit about your story and, and how you've gotten to where you are today. Well, the short version of it, I guess, is uh, I started off as an academic, which means I was somewhat irrelevant to Mm -hmm. practice. And then I began to, as I went through my um, career as a junior professor and teaching courses about change without actually knowing so much about it, just the theory, so to speak. So, uh, but what got me into it as I started to become also an administrator. So I, I was chair of the department then I was dean of the faculty of education and so forth. And that got me at my hands-on, at least in terms of managing and developing uh, change in, in real organizations. But the content of our um, interest, my interest as a sociologist, was uh, improvement and change. So uh, about 20 years into my career, halfway into it, let's say, uh, I began to uh, work with uh, implementing real change and ma- making that my work. And very soon after that, and still to today, we say that, or I say, that 80% of our best ideas come from leading practitioners. This means that we have to partner with practitioners, and that practitioner range, we'll see when we talk about it, has now widened. 
to cover everything from students to the uh, to the the prime minister of the country or whatever. So it's a wide range right now, and uh, but it really has uh, shifted into how do you improve an educational system and for that matter a society that actually seems to be going in the wrong direction the last five years or more. Yeah, there's definitely some challenges that uh, that we are encountering across the globe, and we're going to touch upon that a little bit later in, in, in our conversation. In that journey that you've taken so far, what is it that you've learned about yourself that stays with you today that actually surprised you at the time? I think uh, what surprised me was uh, I was living in a land where it wasn't real, that, that I was giving courses at the university that were lectures from uh, from the literature, mm-hmm. but it wasn't grounded. And what um, what surprised me, I guess, was how irrelevant that was, that, that first, let's say, 15 years of my career. I mean, it was useful in some ways, and people got uh, uh, master's degrees and doctoral degrees. They became certified teachers. Uh, but when I got closer to practice, which was really around 1988, I, a whole new world opened up uh, for me, with me. And that's where I really uh, took off and haven't looked back since 1988. Michael, um, one of the things that we would note in schools all of the all around the world is the gap between the body of literature, the body of research, and what actually happens in schools. If I, if I take one example, which I guess is my own field, which is in character education, there's an extraordinary amount of literature that's been generated in the last 15 years, particularly because of the influence of the Jubilee Centre at the University of Birmingham. Um, and yet when you go and talk to the leading schools who are doing character education better than anybody else, they haven't read any of this sort of stuff. How can we bridge the gap between practitioners who are leaders and practitioners who are researchers and get them talking to each other better so that we don't all have to reinvent the wheel for ourselves every time? Well, I think it's a shift of uh, uh, the role of education that's really at the basis of this because uh, most of us uh, grew up at the early stages. We have to focus on literacy and numeracy, high school graduation, going to a good university. And uh, what has changed fundamentally uh, over these years is, uh, and I did a, re- a report on this, we can talk about it, is uh, what I call the academic obsession with grades and tests narrowed the purpose of education to um, memorizing the curriculum or knowing the test or being a just functionally literate, but not a great thinker. So mm-hmm. we didn't have the purpose of thinking that would come from uh, uh, elements like criteria. So it wasn't so much that there is a gap in the research is that we weren't even looking for that research in practice. It just kind of uh, policymakers were not. And when we talk some more later, we'll, we'll see that our solution, our personal solution has been to focus on what we call new pedagogies for deep learning which is essentially is the six C's, including character and citizenship. And all of that research that you would know that folds on that has now become alive in the schools that we're working working with. And it really has uh, put academic obsession in its place. Academic obsession is not the end all and the be all for most students or most of us. But when you start to look at something more important, like in solving problems, you do find yourself wanting to know more, and then it starts to get back. Uh, so we can find we can enable people to be literate and uh, and and mathematical and science for that matter. But it doesn't stick. Deep learning is quality learning that sticks with you. 
the rest of your life. And we know that the narrow academic learning, first of all, it doesn't stick with hardly any people, maybe 20%. And those that it does stick with a little bit is very short term. They forget mm -hmm. it soon. So it's all it's a misalignment between the purpose and nature of public education and what is needed in life, the purpose to be successful in life individually and collectively. And, and and look, there's a lot that you're saying that is music to our ears, particularly when you're talking about being purposeful um, and intentional about what it is that we do, about about building a whole community of practice that is dedicated to the whole person and not just part of a person and not just a political uh, a political or, or or social agenda that is narrow in in in, in nature. Um, you mentioned new pedagogies. You're the co-leader of the new pedagogies for deep learning global initiative. And it's recognised as a worldwide authority on education, on educational reform. And we're, so we're going to give you a chance to, to dig deep into what you were talking about just then. Um, you work alongside educators and governments to, to help change the role of teachers to that of activators of learning, who design learning experiences that build on learner strengths and needs, create new knowledge using real life problem solving, as you mentioned, and help all students to identify their talents, their purpose and their passion. How can we help school leaders and systems to understand the value in seeing learning in this way, in reframing the role of teachers to be thinking about today's learning for tomorrow's world? Well, the first, uh, the first step is actually not so tough because the majority of educators and others don't find the current system successful. So you don't have to convince them that there's, uh, there's something wrong with the system. They know that from their day-to-day -day experience. And that uh, I did a, an op-ed piece about a month ago that was called Six Reasons for Being Optimistic About Learning in 2022. And the first reason to be optimistic was to escape a bad system. So, uh, so we're getting basic here. And, uh, and the politicians at the, at the top won't be the main motivators to change the system, but there's a dissatisfaction of parents, of students, of principals, you know, what we call, if you just take the simple hierarchy of local, middle, and policymakers, we have been working more and more with the local, uh, which are students and teachers and given schools and the community, and with the regional, which has been the, let's say, the regional network or the school districts in the case of North America. So we're working on the bottom and the middle to push upward to get changes from the top because we need them. And some of them are now arriving out of a view that, that, that there is change needed. But I want to say fundamentally that when you think of the top, which is the Ministry of Minister of Education, you can't expect any of them to last. Uh, well, eight years is, uh, is I'm going to say, uh, almost maximum, which is your, uh, your minister in Victoria has been eight years and he's finished. Most of them last two years, four years. Uh, England has had turnover like well, crazy. So well, it, it, the United Kingdom, they're lucky if they last 24 hours at this stage. Yeah, I know. Well, this last one is only 24 <laughs> hours. So that's that's typical, actually. If uh, if you, uh, one of the, our friends, uh, Tim Brickhouse and, and Mick Waters, two of them, longtime uh, experts in, uh, in that, they just did a book uh, and they interviewed or found out or how they get mm -hmm. at the, um, all of the ministers of state of education uh, for the last uh, 75 years, all of them sequentially. And what you see is a parade of ad hocism, right? That's what you see, a parade of ad hocism 
that doesn't add up. It makes them, it makes the middle and the uh, lower level worse off. It treats them as part of the problem. They'll never get anywhere. So we have shifted our energy uh, uh, now. And I have worked a little bit for, for a period of my apprenticeship, so, so to speak, in Ontario, where we had a good government. And I had 10 years of working at that level between uh, 2003 and 2013. So I got a little bit knowledge about what, what, how to, what makes things tick at the top. But since then, we built the capacity of the, lo the local level and the local regional level and pushing upwards to get the changes at the policy connection. And now some of the top people uh, that is at the policy level are showing strong interest, A, because the thing hasn't been working and they know it, and B, because maybe they do want to make a change and they've got to change their way of making a change. So this is really, this is the, the light that I see now, some possibilities of, try, of saying really to the bottom and the middle, you don't need the top. Just as long as they don't get in your way, you don't need them for that much. So don't feel that you have to please them or try to figure that out. But secondly, for the whole th thing to work eventually, you do need the top. And so we see in the next 10 years, this uh, mutual influence across the hierarchy of local, middle and top. Yeah, really love what you're saying there about working at the at the chalk face and working to build the evidence. Um, the, the ad hocism that you talk to, it's, I, I think it gets complemented by the regression to a set of known ideas, none of which really work. But we keep going back to them, don't we? Well, the answer must be in more testing, mustn't it? Because yeah, why? Because yeah, we test. And why do we test? We test. We test because we test because we test. And, you know, it's 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 that sort of thing. You know, the the the, the great accountability debate. You know, in in our yeah, country, it's, a, it's you know, kind of perverse, isn't it? Oh, it's like weird. Your head it's, Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So, so talking about banging our heads against the wall, if I talk to leaders at the chalk face, they will tell us that if they if they can engage 85% to 90% of their school population, they will come up with exactly the sort of answers that you're talking about here, which is about a whole education for a whole person to prepare them for the whole world. When we uh, we, we, we did a, a project through our research institute a number of years ago with all of the boys' schools in New Zealand, and we asked parents all around the country what they wanted for their boys and not one person mentioned exam results or winning a rugby game which in New Zealand is just remarkable um, either of those really every single person talked about a whole education for a whole person and yet within individual schools there is always a noisy few they're probably the equivalent of the people who live on Twitter and you know, sort of dominate the airwaves of our thinking and 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 that noisy few seems to focus the attention on things like exams and tests and, and, and punishing kids with more and more and more and more and more instead of better work and better learning. You know, if we, if we had Parsi in the room, he would say that, the, you know, the, the, the play had been crowded out of the space by the noisy few. How do we help educators and how do we help educational leaders to know that in pursuing a whole education for a whole child, they're onto the right thing. How do we help them to counteract the voice of the noisy few who keep dragging us back to the ad hocism? It's a matter of um, trying to. Uh, I think we understand what's what's wrong. My, one of my colleagues is the famous Peter Senge. Uh, you probably know of him as the did systems work, and we still work together. And he he said casually one day, said, "What kind of system do we have where the majority of people in the system don't like the system?" The majority don't like it. 
which is basically what you said a minute ago. So this yep. is a this is the mystery, and I think it is. Um, some would say that there's certain people that have uh, that do the best out of the system that they have a vested interest and they're in power. So they, they keep it because their children are doing well. And therefore they, they cherish that and they don't want to open it up because it might water it down for their children. I think that that is a, a subtle um, motivation. I think it's wearing thin though, because in the, in the uh, paper I did on uh, the drivers, I, uh, I call them policy drivers. I said that one of the interesting findings is that uh, is that when you keep uh, you keep pushing for this, that you really don't get anywhere at all, and that and that people are wanting to uh, uh, well, put it this way, uh, the people who are successful in getting the grades are not necessarily better better at life. So just think of it that way, and uh, and their and their parents know it, and they know it. They're not better at life. So this is really. Uh, uh, some uh, one of the studies called them the wounded winners. So the winners, the so-called winners, let alone all those that don't do well, they're not doing well anyways in life when you just look at it and project it. So that we've got a lot of uh, potential dissatisfaction to get at and leverage. I think it'll be a race between disintegration and uh, new breakthroughs. I think that's the stage we're at. Uh, it, 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 it can't take any more negative pressure without imploding. And I think that's a real possibility. That's never been the case uh, unless until the last two or three years, it's become more prominent, not because of COVID. COVID just exposed it for what it was. So I think we're really stuck here uh, that we will go backwards to destruction. I'm talking about human evolution, or we will have this breakthrough where we figure out how the majority of people can be, kids can be successful. And I think we can do that. We can talk about some of those solutions, but this is the the race towards uh, destruction or flourishing. I think that's the kind of race we're in right now, and we're losing that race to the destruction side of the equation. Well, this has been a fascinating uh, listen between you and Phil at the moment, Michael, uh, around the context of our times and what we are currently experiencing, not only in in schools, but of course in in society. And there's a, there's a real uh, challenge uh, ahead for all of us. I want to shift our conversation a little bit to then some ways forward and possible solutions that we could really focus on, particularly the empowerment mm-hmm. of our school leaders. In your in your terrific 2018 book, Nuance, Why, why Some Leaders Succeed and Others Fail. By the way, uh, I love that. And thank you very much for, um, for crafting that book. It's such an influence on me as, as an educator and school leader. You explored the three habits of nuance joint determination, adaptability, and culture-based accountability. How can we then best support school leaders to go beneath the surface level change to tackle complex challenges with depth and clarity? Well, that thank you for the comment on nuance. And that that book was the best of learning from practitioners. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, getting the insights and uh, using their ideas by putting words to it that can convey the depth of it. So uh, I think the those... Uh, those three dimensions that you mentioned, joint determination, et cetera. Uh, we've gone beyond that now as we've implemented this. And so uh, I want to build on that as a solution-oriented uh, thing. But we did a, I did a book last year with a superintendent from the U.S. whose name is Mark Edwards. It's called uh, Spirit Work and the Science of Collaboration. Mm-hmm. So Spirit Work and the Science of Collaboration. 
And we identified eight districts in the U.S. that were doing particularly well the last while. And we found that they had uh, they had uh, two big things going for them. One is they had a, almost a preoccupation and a devotion to say, we have to serve every kid. This is this is a moral imperative, we used to call it. Now I call it spirit work. Spirit work is when you work in education to develop the uh, potential of the vast majority of students and the adults that have to be developing in order for that to happen. And that spirit work is uh, one of... Um, one of three findings that's a, na a natural outcome of, of uh, nuance, but built further in our second book. The second one, uh, adaptability, you, you mentioned, mm -hmm. I, I, I want to use more um, helpful language. Mm -hmm. And the new concept that really captures that best for us, uh, and is powerful, actually, and is pretty new, we only coined it in the last year, is uh, called contextual literacy. Contextual literacy is leaders who take the time to study the culture in which they're in. And so that they become, uh, they become, uh, that's why partnerships are more functional because now they're under, they're working with partners that they're trying to understand. And we say they have to be apprentices on the one hand, learn more about the context, and they have to be experts on the other hand, start influencing it in terms of what you know. So I think this, uh, this part of, uh, of the contextual literacy. The other way to look at this and, and see the uh, vulnerability of it, I guess, is that every time context changes, leaders to a certain extent become de-skilled. So if you if you go to a new job, the culture is different, you are de-skilled to a certain point in relation to that new job. If if COVID wipes everything away, pulls the you know, pulls the rug out from everybody, everybody's de-skilled. Mm -hmm. So now I'm I'm using in our new work, more dynamic terms of we have joint determination, but we have it coupled with uh, contextual literacy built around collaboration and focus and those kinds of things that lead to the better agenda. And I, I have to say that people uh, take to it really quickly and they want to go. We, we have our change sayings like go fast to go slow, you know, get on the right track, but don't try to do everything at once. Uh, don't bulldoze your way into it. Uh, you got to form partnerships all the way through. So I can uh, we our, our website has a lot of videos that this uh, this is uh, capturing, and I think there's a I can give you a couple of uh, two big examples if you like in in a minute. Uh, one from uh, from uh, Victoria, and one from um, one from the U.S. where we work, and I could give you many more of what the new thing looks like. Not only because it's better described in the in the examples, but because it's taking over the whole system. Mm -hmm. It's transforming the whole system. And that's where we will see. Uh, I mean, I don't use that much jar jargon, but the problem is that the system is wrong. And 99% uh, of the solutions try to uh, strengthen a bad system. And what you need is system change. If it's a system problem, you need system change. What I'm talking about in uh, spirit spirit leadership, and contextual literacy and uh, changing the nature of the learning purpose and the outcomes that have to be assessed. Those are all uh, new things that change the history of public schooling, the nature of public schooling. Michael, you, you said earlier that uh, so much of, um, of the system is, is inherently broken and it's something that no doubt Phil and I would uh, be in, in um, violent agreement with you on. <laughs> you also mentioned that we no longer need to wait for these ad hoc 
government agencies and, and ministers to actually implement the change that's necessary for this, this world that we find ourselves in, a world that where, where uncertainty is actually uh, the, the reality of, of, of our existence. So if the answer is within the schools themselves, because they are the system in many ways, and if the answer is uh, the individuals who lead those schools and systems, how then can we best amplify their voice, their agency and their leadership to be advocates, not only for, for change, but to be advocates for, for this kind of new social contract that we're really aspiring to in this conversation here today, for self, for place, for the planet, beyond the boundaries of their school. Right. So, um, I mean, first of all, there's two kinds of, uh, I guess I'll say, resources that come out of doing this the right way. One is increased professional knowledge. Let's call it the, the power of uh, the power of knowledge. Mm -hmm. The other one is the political power that comes when uh, communities and students and, and others get uh, get more into this. So if you take professional power and political power and they combine, they have a lot of power that uh, the, the center, so to speak, can't stop. Uh, the uh, second thing is, it's also the case that I don't see the center stopping uh, people from doing the new things we're talking about. We're doing all kinds of new things uh, and we, we don't need permission from the center to do it. And uh, and they're not they're not stopping it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, we think that uh, if the answer to your question is, is don't let the system be a some kind of a magnifying glass that you think is impervious to what you want to do. Start doing it, but you can't do it alone. And so my mm -hmm. other part to your answer is you have to have you have to build up the uh, contextual literacy of uh, of groups of people mm -hmm. uh, of, of that. So I use an example from Melbourne. We have a partnership with Sandra Milligan, professor yeah. of assessment at university, uh, the, the Melbourne University, and uh, they have a major new thing that we agree with and we're developing ourselves, which they call new metrics. But basically, it's saying the old metrics are the standardized test and the uh, and the entrance into universities that are just wrongheaded. The new metrics are measuring character, mm -hmm. citizenship communication, and they've built that up. That's one part. But the other thing is they've done it, talk about joint determination, in partnership with 38 schools mm -hmm. in, the, in the Melbourne area who have joined them to say, we, will, we, we want this. So in the case of Victoria, actually, individual schools, even if they're government schools, have a fair amount of, uh, I guess I'll say, power that they can use mm -hmm. and uh, and get, get away with it, if I want to put it that way. Uh, so I think that... Uh, what we have to do is start those initiatives, start it being what I would say, going from the individualistic history of, of, of education to the um, to the collaborative, and then from the collaborative to the collective. The collective is bigger, the bigger collaborative, I guess I'll put it in that way. And that these are the forces, and we're finding some um, people at the top that are uh, either willing to allow this or wanting to uh, we wanted to get uh, help get into it. I use one other final example of here in this while we're talking about it. Uh, Kentucky, uh, it's a, a state that has uh, you know 300 school districts, and we have uh, for the last two or three years been working in with our deep learning um, emphasis on it. It's the six C's 
It's a new pedagogy that's more participative uh, on the part of students and uh, parents and teachers. It's different ways of assessment. It's collaboration, all of that. And they've loved it and because they've only done small parts of it. And they've just made a policy decision to have 15 of their districts with uh, someone appointed to that with uh, several million dollars to implement deep learning the next three years and to see that spread to other districts in the state. These are decision makers that are at the levels that the driving force is at the, uh, I'll say at the school and the community in combinations of that. So it's at the local and the middle level, but the, but the, uh, the, the center, if you like, is either allowing it to happen or wanting it to happen. So I think there's, this is what we have to do. We have to build up examples of credible success that has some size to it not just one school that's doing great, but actually critical masses of initial groups that then this will spread uh, after that because uh, because the current system is so bad and because these new things are so satisfying for the students, the teachers and the principals. And it's a race against uh, um, destruction. I said, you've sort of got me on a run here. Uh, I just saw yesterday, I got two reports, one from New South Wales, which was titled, no one wants to be a teacher. Yeah, that's the title of it. it. Research over you, you probably know it because it's mm -hmm. it's at home. And I saw another one from the Rand Corporation that said 80 80 percent of principals are burning out and mm -hmm. they just want to they don't want to continue. Eighty mm -hmm. percent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this is yeah, and, and, the, the alternative to this is what I've described at what Sandra is getting at Milligan and her thirty eight schools. What uh, what Kentucky is doing and what we're doing in the deep learning, but it is a race against time. I think uh, there's so many bad elements in it. If we don't get the positive forces showing progress and being uh, 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 visible to the rest, then I think we don't have a chance because now the weight is against uh, against the break route. The, the weight favors misery. Michael, there's again, there's so, there's so much that you're unpacking there, but this this conclusion that you're drawing, which is about getting to a system which just simply isn't working, where we all know it's it's the emperor's new clothes all over, all over the world, really, um, in New South Wales and in in Victoria, in Australia, um, teachers are already imploding. They're all, they've got to the point where they're saying enough's enough. This 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 yeah. simply can't work. Um, because, you know, of course, implicit behind this is if we want to change the way people do their work, mm. then we have to recognise that the basis on which they work is different. And therefore, we have to be prepared to work with a workforce to construct it. It's one of the challenges of public education, of course, is that, um, you know, bureaucrats and unions, they don't really like change when it comes to thinking about the way in which the, the workforce changes. Um, the report that you mentioned, it's Nicole Mockler's behind that, and she's yeah, done. Exactly. It's a beautiful yeah. piece of work. Adriana, I just want you to know, she was, of course, the head of history at the same time I was the head of history, um, back, in, <laughs> back in Sydney, back in the day. So, yeah, you know, yeah no, it's a really, really, really lovely piece of work. I think um, I think there, there, there's a couple of things I want to pick up on out of what you've talked about there, Michael. The first is is the nature of the work that's taking place with new metrics, which is I think it's 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 a fabulous bold attempt to sit there and say how could we measure differently? And Sandra's doing Sandra's doing terrific work around that. We've got three or four of the schools that we work with are all part of that new metrics um, right, and so issues you know throughout the school for our, our school for tomorrow network. What's really interesting is that they're tackling it without necessarily knowing where the solutions are going to lie, and therefore the problem-solving is iterative um, along the way. And, and as you said, it's the feedback bubbling up from the individual schools and individual principals 
um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll mention the fabulous Nikki Kirkup from the Knox School in Melbourne, who's very strong in, in, in sitting there and saying, do you know what? It needs to work for my school. Otherwise, the solution's not going to work. And I know too, um, you know, uh, Stuart Marquardt at Lindisfarne Anglican Grammar School in the beautiful Tweed Coast of New South Wales. Again, a similar sort of situation. School principals need that contextual solution rather than an ideological solution or a one-size-fits-all type solution around there. I'm very much reminded in all of this by the work of one of your collaborators, um, uh, Jojo McKechn from New Zealand, whose wonderful work on contributive curriculum tells us that, that, that curriculum in particular needs not just to be what, it needs to be who, and it needs to be where, and it needs to be why. Everything we need do needs to be grounded in the, in the humanity of individuals. I'm interested in your thoughts about how we can help school leaders amplify this local voice. You've mentioned it a couple of times already. It sits really well with the research work that we've been doing over the last 10 to 15 years with schools around the work uh, around the world. How do we help school leaders amplify the local voice so that so that education is a service to them and their communities rather than something that's being done to them? Well, I think we do it by the initiatives we're talking about. Uh, uh, the Sandra's partnership with the 38 schools, that's not a small endeavor. There's fact, there's many more schools that want to be part of that. So I think we have to run with that. We have to refine the description of it. My my The content of what I said in nuance was quite, uh, quite accurate. I'm going to say it that way. But when, the way I want to say it now, I want to use slightly different uh, different uh, words. I want to use uh, spirit work. I want to use uh, contextual literacy. Uh, I want to use uh, student as change maker. So there's a lot of ways in which, and, and what you mentioned was uh, they're doing this project because if it's something that's so so new, uh, you're not going to just find it somewhere. You have to create it and then you have to share it and, and build it out that way. So I think we're in a phase now where this can expand, but I still want to worry about the downside uh, you will know Andy Hargraves, maybe you have him on your program, but uh, nice. Andy and I wrote a, a book in 2012 called The Professional Capital of Teachers. And in it, we said there's business capital, which is you think of uh, teachers as widgets that you can change around and boss around and all of that. Or there's professional capital where the profession with its individual work, its collective work and its uh, different way of decision can actually be radically different. So if you just look at the tea leaves now, if I put it that way, it's very clear that those that favor business capital image will be quite happy to have digital domination of learning with fewer live educators. They will be happy to that outcome. It's simpler to think of because a, a, a artificial intelligence is going a mile a minute. It's getting powerful and powerful. Um, uh, some of us have critiqued it. We eventually say, you have to combine the professional knowledge of teachers and principals and the power of digital as partners and you'll get the solution. Uh, that's that's pretty sure, I think. But mm -hmm. what's happening is it'll be quite easy to imagine in the next five years that digital dominates and that fewer teachers and fewer principals end up surviving. And we have a different kind of uh, uh, looking after the machines to look after learning, which will be what I call the bloodless paradigm. Uh, there's the bloodless paradigm, and there's the humanity paradigm. And this is very much 
uh, we can imagine a world that is bloodless in the future, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, as you can't control it, you can't stop it just because you might not like it. It's the, the power and the momentum favors the bloodless paradigm. And so that's why I'm, I, I'm, we ourselves are looking for um, and supporting more and more critical masses. We're doing some of this in California as well with uh, San Diego County that has 42 districts and 500,000 students. And we've taken on, they've, their board passed an initiative we just started with them to reduce poverty among the students and the 500,000 students and increase learning on deep learning five competency side. That's what we, we're doing. We're going to create it at that size. And, uh, and so I think we just have to, we have to push harder uh, to create the, uh, the examples that we now can see around the world, but will, uh, will not really do well. Uh, one, of the, uh, one of the great books I read uh, uh, was around nine, uh, I did it uh, around 2010, 29 was uh, uh, Claudia Golden, I think her name is. And it, the book was called The Race Between Education and Technology. Mm-hmm. And it's a fabulous analysis in which she concluded and had the data was focusing on the US that for the years from let's say 1950 to 1970, education was winning the race vis-a-vis technology. There was better, more graduates, uh, equity is coming down a bit. And that starting around 1975, that started to change in reverse. And since then, I can say pretty accurately, since 1980, let's say, take those years, uh, that the technology has won the race time and again over education. That's the way to put it. And now we the conclusion is not to destroy technology, but to get the human paradigm be the driver and have uh, teachers collaborating, well-led, tied in with the digital to make a deeper impact on learning and have it have it framed around new purposes that I think we have articulated fairly well and that are, are, uh, are quickly uh, have a lot of appeal to quite a lot of people but the the success of it's a race against getting some successes enough to slow down the destructive train. It's um, really interesting listening to your perspective there around uh, the prevalence of technology or the rise of it. I'm a huge supporter of technology, Michael, in uh, in all elements of life. However, I would only ever want it to enhance uh, my humanness and and provide opportunities for us to continue to engage in this type of a dialogue uh, where there's some rich conversation that happens where those aha moments occur, uh, where the spontaneity of our kind of fraternal humanism can really um, come to the surface. What we witnessed here in particular in Victoria during the two years of the height of the pandemic, because we are we are a state that was in 2020 um, in lockdown for 120 or so consecutive days, and then the yeah, equivalent, remember, the equivalent yeah. occurred in 2021. So our young people uh, and, and the adults that supported them within schools uh, had to, you know, pivot to this paradigm of, of this through, 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 through another medium to, to be able to deliver uh, learning and, and, um, and build relationships. What we discovered, of course, talking with many of our school clients is fundamentally that people matter. And at the heart of, of really effective uh, school communities, wellness has to come first. And they had developed over those two years a deeper, a deeper consciousness about the individual needs of not only the young people in their care, but of course their staff. Information that they hadn't discovered before, 
um, mm-hmm. because through, throughout of necessity, you know, they went to, you know, that, that this is what's occurred. What they also discovered was the value of the on-campus experience is the character apprenticeship that's formed between the teacher and the student, the, the strength of the peer and peer exchange. Uh, yep. and, and then those incidental op- opportunities of, of the, the richness of a co-curricular that, that reveals a young person's passion or interest, uh, you know, or, or their opportunity to have a voice and make a change about a social cause that's, that has a, an immediate impact on someone's well-being. All those things have great value and continue to have value and probably are the reason why schools are going to be preserved going forward if we get it right. What we also then saw, though, was that technology enabled many in those communities to, to, to tap into learning or, or access learning that perhaps they, they hadn't pr- pr- previously or, or at a scale that we hadn't seen. So I suppose there's a tension here, isn't there? There's a tension between how far over do we go to a place and the, the influence of technology where it feels that we're only then measuring productivity versus how do we continue to ensure that our learning communities are places of significance and foster significance and foster the joy of wonder and awe. Right. Well, I love your, uh, I love your depiction of it. And uh, let's look at it more closely. Uh, one of our colleagues, you may know of her, is Valerie Hannon. Yes. And uh, she, uh, she just published uh, with another author, uh, just published a uh, new book called uh, Futures schools. It's all one word. Futures schools. Yeah. Michael, before, Michael, before you continue, we should disclose that Valerie Hannon is writing, has written the forward for our book, Game Changes, leading today's schools okay. for tomorrow as well. So she's a very good friend of ours and a, an esteemed colleague. Good. So I got a particular point. Very early in the book, she lists 10, um, 10 things that have come out of COVID. And they're similar to what Adriano just uh, um, just stated, but I use that in my workshops now is take a look at these 10 things. Uh, I'm talking about students and teachers uh, uh, looking at this and identify which ones that you really stuck with you. And if you look at those those 10 things, some of them are good and some of them are bad mm-hmm. and they're not just all good. Mm-hmm. And so obviously we want those uh, people uh, to leverage the good and change the system that way. But I have to say once again, beware of digitization because because it's a money male dominated domain. Full stop. Mm-hmm. That's what it is, and it's got there. There may be the odd one person who's going on it for humanity, but it's not about money. It's about power. It's about uh, it's about uh, money, and it's dominated by males. It's not. Then uh, there's very little in that domination. The, I mean, the digital is neutral potentially because it can be used for good or bad, but I'm saying the those people that control it tend to be on the negative side from my point of view is what of the humanity paradigm. But now we, we, we see in those uh, breakthroughs uh, COVID, and I think that the uh, tapping in to the good things that you just alluded to as well, the Valerie does that we do, that this will allow educators to start to... Uh, link digital and, hu- and human paradigms and make examples of that. And that's what we're doing in deep learning. They are having, they're coming up with examples uh, of, of initiatives that really show the alternative to a mere digitization. And, and uh, it really is, is uh, I mean, I write about this all the time 
Now, it's really as fundamental as human evolution. Do we end up, um, you know, becoming distinct or almost distinct? Uh, uh, I mean, do we end up being uh, extinct uh, as a as a species, or or decimated, or worse, the, or do we end up flourishing? And that's the kind of the uh, the crystal ball right now. Which of those two is going to happen in the next five years? Because it's happening quickly, and either force could take uh, take over. And I just think the digital power is easier to imagine and mobilize than the human power. It's harder to do that. And yet that's that's the battle that I think we can portray and put it that way and start developing the uh, the positive versions of those uh, those images. Michael, it's been a, it's been a tremendous conversation. We really, really enjoyed the opportunity to um, to take a walk around the park with you. Of education and to and to stretch our minds and and, and stretch our thinking um, as we stretch our legs. Um, I have one last question for you, which we're asking everybody in this series. I'm not quite sure how appropriate it is right now. It's all based on the notion of Twitter, uh, but that's all right. We're, we're, we're just going to run with it anyway. Um, if you only had 280 characters to tweet out a definition of leadership, what would it be? Uh, leadership is uh, becoming a, a lead learner in three domains, uh, they're interconnected. One is uh, what I call spirit spirit work. The second is contextual literacy. And the third is systemness. That's the first two thirds of it. The last third of it, lead learner means not only becoming a lead learner yourself, but producing other lead learners as part of your team. So when you leave, there are more leaders left behind. So there are multi- multiplicative uh, facets to it. So that's those are the content are the three things I said. And the process is to make sure you do it yourself and you do it to promote it, uh, lead learner with others, including students, especially students in some ways. Students are our best change makers. And, uh, and that's what we, that's our conclusion in deep learning, incidentally, that students as change makers is the most powerful resource we are not using right now. I think, uh, Phil, um, it's more than 280 characters then, so we're going to have to have a thread in our Twitter in, in our Twitter conversation. I think, I think we're going to do it, but that's all right. That's all right. We're going to have lots of threads because we don't want to lose that. I love that. I love that we finish on the students. I think that's a really powerful way to conclude our conversation today. Phil, over yeah. to you. Yeah, no, thank you, Michael. Nothing further may be said, really. I mean, there's, again, there's so much of what you do and what you say and who you are that synthesizes the way forward, the, the big step forward now mm-hmm. uh, in education. Yeah, I'd like to find out more about about your work uh, now that I've met you more uh, seriously. So uh, I do want to look into the networks that you've been promoting. Well, we'd, 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 love, to, we'd love to share more about that. That's, gosh, I'm a bit chuffed yeah. about that, really. Yeah. Um, um, it's good work. Good work is what uh, fuels my ideas. Michael Fullen, thank you so much. Um, I, think, I think what you've explained about leadership, you embody that for so many of us. You've built a lifetime and a, and a career. As a, as a lead learner and you pass on what you learn to others and, and you multiply and you reciprocate and you build interdependence, um, uh, you, you have the prophetic voice. And the prophetic voice, I think, is not necessarily about seeing what the future might be, but it's about insisting that we do the right thing. The moral imperative is always there in your work, and we thank you for that. We thank you for being on Game Changers today. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been a great discussion. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, 
Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.